Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Kelly McCormack, an actor, writer, and producer I first noticed in Play the Film, a comedy she made with friend of the show Christian Brune a few years back. Since then, she's written and co-starred in another feature, Barn Wedding, and turned up in episodes of Defiance, 11-22-63, and That's My DJ. She produced and co-starred in The Nettos of Duquesne Island for CBC Digital, and she's stealing scenes on Killjoys this season as new nerd Zeph. And somehow she had an hour to spare to do this. Kelly chose Phantom of the Paradise, Brian De Palma's 1974 glam rock musical nightmare about a composer named Winslow Leach, a record producer named Swan, and a singer named Phoenix, and how their Faustian fates converge at a New York City club called The Paradise. With songs by Paul Williams, who also plays the diabolical swan, and kind of great performances from William Finley and Jessica Harper, it's an unforgettable, mostly indescribable ride. If you've never seen it, this episode is going to sound like two people somehow sharing the same psychotic episode, and who knows, maybe we are. This is someone else's movie. Phantom of the Paradise. Oh my gosh, this movie means so much to me, for so many bizarre reasons. Um, you know, there was, I, I, I did message you. I was like, oh man, I could talk about Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, West Side Story, Harold Maude. I mean, I have so many favorites, um, but Phantom of Paradise, Phantom of the Paradise is, is such a special gem in cinema history. (laughs) Um, and I thought, well, there's, I don't know if there's going to be anyone in the city better to talk about this than me. This is why I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, uh, I'll just say now I'm, um, not what you would call a cinephile, like you are. I it's a very it's like my guilty thing. I have to admit, um, growing up, I didn't watch any movies. Okay. Um, it was com- always completely by accident if I did, which included this movie. Um, but growing up, I was much more into reading plays and listening to musicals, and I was studying opera really young. And um, I had three brothers, and they had we had one television, and I had a single mom, and it was like they were just playing video games the entire time. And then we'd go up to my island, like, in the summer, we'd go up to this cabin that my grandfather built 60 years ago, this, like, shack in the woods, and I think that's, like, the time and summertime is when people watch movies, I guess. Cottage stuff, yeah. Con- I mean, yeah, just or... Just because there's nothing else to do. Exactly, and, and like, parents want to go hang out, so they're like, oh, watch a movie. So I had seen The Labyrinth a bunch by the okay. time I was, like, 19. That's, like, the extent of my... <laughs> So now, as a screenwriter and as a producer and as an actor as well, um, I'm doing so much catch-up. But I get to watch things for the first time and stuff. But I'm that person who, like, I could name every Broadway show and the original cast of every Broadway show and every any any play Samuel French has printed, I could, like, tell you, like, all right, this right. was first produced at this theater. But movies wasn't really my thing. But um, obviously now, as a writer, I'm... <laughs> very much into them uh but so phantom of paradise phantom of the paradise i always call it phantom of paradise but it's phantom of the paradise um i accidentally watched okay <laughs> so um when my parents separated when i was like seven we um my dad ended up there's this like really weird f- 10 years <laughs> where my so i've four uh there's four of us and my dad um moved out and met this other woman and had another kid and uh every like couple months the four of us would go over there and um we would like hang out with him just like just for a weekend we didn't see him that often okay and 
he had married this new woman and it was really weird for a couple years for us. And like the nice thing about four children is that when you want to avoid something, you can just kind of escape. And there's likely like two kids who are like holding court and you can just like peace out. So my younger brother and I, Chris, and we were both the middle kids and he, my younger brother was like such a interesting little kid. I must've been like 11 and he was maybe nine And we used to go upstairs to this room at my dad's house um, where my stepmother, it was like a sewing room where my stepmother made maternity clothes. Okay. So there's all these like weird, like, like Judy's with like pregnant bellies and stuff. Oh yeah. And there was this old TV that my dad had in like, like the eighties or maybe even the seventies, like a really, really old, like with a knob, right? Like it was old for when we were watching this movie, which was been like the late nineties. Um, so... (laughs) So we were upstairs and this and we would just try and escape like our weird like family situation by going up to this room and turning on this television which only got one channel. <laughs> and oh no, two channels, two channels. And uh we'd sit there kind of like huddled underneath this these like oh there was also like exercise bikes cuz it was also her like workout room of this woman that we like barely knew. Right. And we, this is a really great picture you're painting. Yeah, we were sitting we would sit on these like beanbag chairs in between like a elliptical and like Judy pregnant Judy's right. and like a bunch of fabric draped everywhere and we kind of like move the elliptical in front of the door so like if someone were to peek in they like wouldn't know we were in there because downstairs there's like three other children and like a bunch of stuff going on and we'd just be like hiding so we went upstairs this is like a reverse Wes Anderson movie it, it, like, it, po- like it's like it's like um, Noah Baumbach made a movie The Squid and the Whale oh I know it and yeah. that one if your parents are divorced it hits home you're kind of like this, the weirdest memories of being like, I don't understand what's going on. Who is this strange person? Why do I have a new brother? I don't understand. So why did no one tell us anything? Like, all that kind of... it was, And we were like a Wes Anderson family. The four of us would go over to this one house. And, you know, we. my dad was very big into, like, manners and stuff. I, I will get to the movie in a second. This is all important material. <laughs> this is all about me. It was like a Wes... We'd sit around the table and, like, you know... It, it was very weird for us because like my mom was a single mom with four jobs like we didn't never ate family meals ever like ever she just was never home and we just like fended for ourselves and whatever so when we went to our dad's it was like suddenly the four of us would like the four like dirty island children (laughs) and then like the new kid who who was had way better manners than us and my dad and my stepmom who had who were really big into manners and we'd sit there kind of like 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 the royal tenenbaums but like super awkward so my brother and I are upstairs and Chris is like my brother Chris is the weirdest of the Royal Ten Bombs. Like, doesn't say anything for days. And then when he does, it's like a non sequitur. And it's just, he's like a quiet, you know, dude. Anyways, we're upstairs. And um, the only two channels you could get on this TV were um, the Live Surgery Channel, which is a sh- channel that was like in the hundreds where you could watch like live surgeries. And my dad was a doctor, so I guess maybe it was always on that channel. Okay. But horrific. Like, horrific. Yeah, no, I mean, I've seen surgery footage. It's, it's absolutely t- nightmarish. Nightmarish. Yeah, it's especially just, if you don't understand what you're seeing. Oh, my God. And they were like, the the the, the camera's like right above the body. Yeah, oh, yeah. my God. And there's these lines all over it. I, I can't even talk about it. So it was that or the Space Channel. Okay. And the Space Channel at nighttime would... And then later on, it turned into... Uh, we, we could also get the Iron Chef, but just the Japanese version. So we'd watch <laughs> Iron Chef in J- Japanese the entire... Like, for hours. Okay. And we'd just, like, try and guess what they were saying. <laughs> anyway, so there was Space Channel. some sort of demented satellite setup? I don't know. It's just so two wires? it's so weird. So we watched um, Space Channel, and there was 
um, they always played a movie that was like a cracked out 70s like sci-fi space. Like they'd play like Logan's Run or they played that weird one with Oz that, um, um, who's the guy who played 007, the, who am I thinking of? He was... Oh, Zardoz. That's, Gotta be Zardoz. That's Sean the one. Connery and yeah, Parker. and like there's like yeah. naked women running around and blah, blah, blah. And I'm with my brother and we're like, this is so weird, but like we couldn't stop watching. It was like, and, and the, in the 70s, they had this this vitality to their, to their like to the movies. They were like nothing else. Like yeah. they weren't, like, you know, we were growing up watching like Goonies and, you know, Mighty Duck and stuff like that. And this was just like, what? Like, yeah. what is this crazy? So. Unrestrained, I think is a very Unrestrained. Good way to play. Yeah. So we um, were sitting there. We'd every night we'd watch. Every time we were over there, we'd watch like a weird space movie, and we wouldn't talk the whole time. And then afterwards, we'd leave the room to be like forever changed. Like that <laughs> was that better than being downstairs with the family? I don't know. So anyway, one year, um, one day, sorry, uh, it was Phantom of the Paradise came on, and Chris and I were enthralled. And like me being, you know, growing up through musical theater and music, it's this amazing like instant cult classic rock opera feast for the eyes like incredible thing and it's all the music is written by paul williams okay. right who if anyone doesn't know this but like he's won every award you can win he's also an actor but claim to fame he wrote like the rainbow connection yep. and um like a million other hits he wrote the theme to love boat he's just like that guy anyway um do you want me to say like what it's loosely about i guess sure yeah yes. you want to. i mean i i don't I was trying to figure out earlier, because I always have to write an intro and an outro yeah, for yeah, these yeah. things, and it's like, well, what do you even, if you don't know what the Phantom of the Paradise is, yeah. you can't really explain it in a way that makes logical sense, right. because it is, you know, it's your standard Phantom of the Opera yeah. Faust riff. Exactly, yeah. I was it's, like, there you go. Yeah, just it's did built it. on bones, right? Yeah. That are really, really mm-hmm. old and really, really simple to understand. Yeah, yeah. But that in no way prepares you for the experience of no. watching it. No. Um, Kate had never seen it before, and we watched it the other night, and she just, she didn't know how to process it initially. It's just like you're grabbed by the lip and pulled into this thing. It's like no other movie, and the ch- I say that the choices that he, that he makes, Brian De Palma makes, and like, are so confident, and the performances are so, like, I want to say uninhibited, but I want to say also kind of like, unleashed or, uh, or like, Unhinged. It's yeah. just there. The times where they could make it, you know, do one thing, they 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 throw it in a different direction, or like the amount of like medium shots of people just dancing, and so yeah, I guess basically as you said, it's like a remake of like the Phantom of the Opera sh- story, but way better. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Paul Williams plays this incredible um, this record label re- uh, owner named Swan, who's mm-hmm. this you know womanizing god like character, and and. Uh, and then you have this incredible, um, what's his name? Oh, Win- William, Winslow William Leach. Finley, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leach, Winslow yeah. Leach playing this this up and coming composer, who Swan steals his music, and then he turns into Winslow Leach turns into this like deformed creature because he goes to jail and he falls in love with this woman named Phoenix, who's the singer, and uh, and then he like tries to like write music for her, and of course like people die, and it's you know amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, I talk about this movie a lot, I've been talking about it a lot recently because um, 
my film Sugar Daddy, which is a, which is a music movie. I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but it's just, my just in the sort of most uh, roundabout way because I yes. almost don't want to know anything yes. based on what you've been saying. Well, I, I will. I can tell you a little bit about it, but sure. in, in, in its bare bones, it, it's a music movie. It's about this up and coming singer songwriter who's too broke to work on her music, so she signs up for SugarDaddy.com, which is the cultural phenomenon of like e-commerce paid dating. Okay, and then she kind of throws herself into this like you know pressure cooker situation where she has all these clients where she goes on these quote-unquote like platonic um not platonic but um above board dates and she learns how to package herself for all these different men and then therefore package herself for the music industry so it's one of those like you know we have original music being written for the film and you know she's writing the music kind of there's a character who's who who she is she's writing the music for the show for the film and then within the film you see her singing the music so um, it's not the story's not at all similar to Phantom of the Paradise, but there is um, a setup of a care of a brilliant composer of some sort who's writing music, and then you in within the film hear the music, right, yeah. and that is so hard because it has to be actually good. And two things we didn't want to happen was a the, the music just be like when the character performs it. You know, the, you see the audience just kind of like clapping because we've told them to. We want the audience who's watching at home be like, oh, damn, that's a really good song. Yeah. And in Phantom of the Paradise, it's incredible because all those setups are paid off. Like the song he's writing throughout the whole thing that Phoenix sings at the end is. It's stunning. <laughs> like and and, you know, when you have a, a movie where they're like that voice, like she's. She's like, she's got a voice like no other. And then you hear her sing. She actually has a voice like no other. Yeah. Like, she's got this deep, like, slow vibrato, weird, like, 70s dream sequence sound. I hope everyone understands what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised. There are two things that always surprise me about Phantom of the Paradise every time I see it. First is that I always think it's in Los Angeles. And yeah. it's not. It's a New York movie mm-hmm. through and through. Um, I guess it's just all the residual coke sweat. I, yeah, I and the hot pink, like, it feels, neon signs. Yeah, yeah, it feels 70s. And the music, I guess I associate Paul Williams with West Coast more than East Coast, Totally, too. yeah. And the other thing is that it's Jessica Harper's first movie. Yeah. I it, I don't get that. I, no, I mean, she she's so assured, she's so oh my confident, God. and she belts in a way that... She literally has this voice. She's like, hello, like, that's my, that's my crazy intro. I, I sing way higher than that, but she's just like, so like, like you literally, it feels like this seventies, like yeah, the smoky dream husky. sequence, like just like something's about to happen. Oh God, she's so good. And she's so confident with her dancing. And, and the other thing is like, it, it feels like they hired rock stars, like every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, like the guy who plays beef. <laughs> Garrett Graham. Uh, yeah. Not a rock star. Not a rock star. Anyway, just a, a comic actor. Just so good, though. Like, unhit, unhinged. Yeah, he commits. He fully commits. He was, oh, and every song. So when the when it, when my brother and I, Chris, were first watching the show, um, the beginning one. It, the, so another thing is that I love they do is that you know Swan plays this record. Um, this this rec- owns this record label called Death Records, which I actually have a shirt that's of Death Records, which oh, is nice. an upside down dead bird, crow. Yeah. But I but I couldn't find it. I was like scrambling through my apartment because <laughs> I wanted to wear it, even though it's a podcast. I wanted to commit. No, um, no, I get that. I totally get that. <laughs> yeah, um, it's cool because it, the, the beginning of the show starts with this kind of like nineteen fifties duop group doing this live studio recording. And that song is so good. The Hey Little Eddie, yeah, born yeah. in Jersey City, started singing when he was five. It's like so good. Yeah, it's a pastiche of 
every doo-wop number from the yeah. 50s and Tell Laura I Love Her, is, I think is one that Paul Williams cites. Exactly, yeah. And also literally Little Darling, mm-hmm. right? Like everything with yayas in it and yeah. all those weird... But it's it's like it's like a 1950s like feel-good song, but then it's about this guy killing himself yeah. to pay for his... like So that his money goes to his dying sister. So everything just has this like turn of the crank weirdness. And then they become like the Beach Boys a little bit. Yeah. And then they become like glam rock kiss or whatever so you see the commercialization and the um the packaging of these of these these waves of music and then she comes out and just cuts through all of it and it's and and you know i can't imagine as someone who writes myself and also writing a music movie it's like you want these moments and then they come out and they sing this song and this song is so undeniably good and her voice is just so undeniably good and you're like, well, better, you know, easier said than done. <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah. how do you write a song that cuts through an entire movie of music? And Paul Williams obviously can pull that off because he wrote the Rainbow Connection <laughs> <laughs> and every other good hit in like the '80s and '90s. Yeah, um, it is really something, and and it's really something to make a musical. Period mm-hmm. with new songs. Mm-hmm. I just I'm always astounded when people figure out how to do it in a way that isn't derivative or that celebrates a form that already exists and this one kind of does that by being self-conscious right away self-aware yeah and using the juicy fruits and i forget the other incarnations but those three actors keep coming back yeah as a greek chorus sort of oh yeah totally thinking this could work on stage and then you realize no it couldn't because you'd have to kill audience members to do it yeah 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 and and that scale that it just starts so big and so loud it's and then it goes higher yeah and it just blow it bowls you over it won't let you question wait a minute is this really no it is it is happening shut up sit down keep going one of the craziest things that i think they accomplish is it's such a weird thing to say but the extras in this movie like they have a concert scene, and one of the reasons why you avoid a concert scene in anything is because how do you get an entire room full of people to look enthralled without looking kind of like stupid, right? Yeah. You know, just that's why there's like cut to audience just like clapping, like stock footage. These extras look like they're all high on cocaine and they are just losing their mind, living their full truth as these like 70s hippies, and they're going mental, like mental. They're having like orgasms it feels like and then at the and then it just every other you know every time they have a new show then they're on the stage and they're going crazy and like if you point i've seen it so many times now that like i'll point out an extra and be like look at that guy go like look at that guy go did you notice the guy who moves phoenix's mic cable i just saw that one watching it in here on no way when she makes her big entrance and walks out Mm mm-hmm there's somebody, and it's obviously it's after all the bodies have been pulled out, so oh, they clearly that. have techs in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But someone's job is to make sure that microphone doesn't get tangled. And whether it's a grip in the film or it's someone within Swan's production, yeah. it doesn't matter at this yeah. point because yeah. it's just a natural behavior. Right. But yeah, there's a guy who just lifts very carefully, lifts the mic cable over the corner of the um, the runway so she doesn't get stuck. It's crazy. Like, I watch it and the, the audience is going so mental. The producer brain in me is going like, is this safe? Like, Oh, it probably the, wasn't. The, I mean, <laughs> it was back 1973. There, 1973, like the filmmaking, they're just so dangerous. They're just so like there's no nothing's placed nothing's like and then this person will enter the frame and this it's just a mess yeah but there are also these meticulous behaviors required for the split screen shots where clearly you're not seeing two separate takes you're seeing multiple camera takes right of the same moment there's a there's even that bit in the when the bomb is planted i mean i I just 
God bless Brian De Palma for having the stones to rip off Touch of Evil <laughs> and Psycho in the same movie. Having the stones, like in general, could just be like this movie. It's so it's so confident, and and that's why I refer to it when I talk about Sugar Daddy and like mm. you know with my creative team and stuff. Because it's funny, I um in meetings like we went to Cannes last year and we were doing pre sales in the film, and and in meetings I was like, yeah, it has like you know, it's, it's this film that's very, it's modern. She's an electronic pop musician. We want to, you know, a lot of times like movie, music, movie, uh, music movies Mm -hmm. use are based in the seventies. I think because undeniably it's the greatest decade of music making. And like, it's got such nostalgia to it that like, if you have to try and believe in a character making as a musician in the seventies, it's easy to do where it's really hard right now because music is changing so rapidly. Having a modern mu- oh, yeah, music no. movie, like it's, it's just not done. If and you that, try to do it now, it'll be dated in two years. Exactly. So, but that's what we're doing. <laughs> and, um, you know, we talk about how modern it is and how fresh it is and how like she's trying to be like on the front cusp of, um, of, of making music and, and, you know, electronic music. But we, I'd always say, I'm like, you know, but with the vitality of Phantom of the Paradise. And then most of the time, people are like, sorry? But then there's that one executive, or there's that one person who's like, oh my god, that film. <laughs> Which is another fun fact, is when I was in New York, you know, auditioning for Broadway shows and stuff like that, it's a big thing that you have a song that no one knows. Okay. Because, you know, you audition for musicals and you're singing like, I don't know, Thoroughly Modern Millie or something from Oklahoma or something from Wicked, like everyone knows what it is. So I tracked down oh, at the nice. New York, um, the New York uh, like reference library. I tracked down to the score to *Family with Paradise*, and I used to audition for Broadway shows with the "Hey Little Eddie" born in Jersey City. Oh, I was so all I thought you'd go with old friends, and I also sing that too. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I and I used to I like learned it on the ukulele too. So like <laughs> I would come in, but I wouldn't sing it like her. She's you, no one can sing it like this girl in the movie. I can't even... I have to sing it an octave above her. Yeah. She's like, oh, She's like, Lo. And I And I don't know how she does it. Um, it's just her. I mean, it really... Yeah. I've, I've, have you, you must have seen Shock Treatment. Yes, 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 yes. And yes. she does the same thing. Same thing, yeah. And I don't know how. Uh, she doesn't speak like that. She no. doesn't even have the poise for that voice. And it no. just... She braces herself in this weird way, and it just comes out of her. Yeah. And then, and then, so when you have three scenes of her saying, I just want to sing, just let me sing, and when the Phantom is like, Phoenix is the only person who can sing our music, you're like, all right, well, how good is this girl going to be? Mm-hmm. And in today's, you know, movies, like with some with a movie maybe like, um, I don't know, like a pop movie of, of some, I'm trying to think of like, what are like the new music movies? Pitch Perfect. Pitch Perfect, whatever, exactly. Like the, the expect, or any glee, right? The expectations is that she'd be like, ah! Like she'd yeah. be like doing like a big vocal sound. aerobic thing. But, yeah, and do. she doesn't. She just sings a perfectly written song in her voice with like all the intention behind it. Like the the lyrics are insane. Like um, like it, our love is an old love baby. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. It's like our love is an old love baby. Um, it's older than you and I. And like our love, our our paths have crossed and parted. This love affair was started long ago. Mm-hmm. Like it's stunning, weird, cryptic stuff you know and you and it's so well done oh it's so well done i could talk about this movie forever um yeah. but yeah i used to audition for for shows in new york with this music and then occasionally people would be like oh my god that was so pretty like what is that from like oh it's from this weird 70s rock musical called phantom of the paradise and occasionally someone would be like don't kill me was that phantom of the paradise i'm like yes it was thank you very much um it's so good and like even the song that um the when 
you've referred to it a couple of times when they're like killing the people in the audience. Mm-hmm. Like they're bringing up, they're yeah, creating the Frankenstein, the number, Frankenstein yeah. number where they're bringing up these like bodies and like the three men, the Greek chorus, we need a man. Da, 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 it's so good. Oh man. Yeah. But I don't think it would work on stage, which is why it's so. It's funny. Every now and then you see um, someone take a movie musical and turn it into a stage production. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess so. Why not? Yeah. And I think if, like, there would be riots, I think, if yeah. tr- if people tried. Or maybe they already have tried and been murdered, and we well, just don't know. I have a I have a big pet peeve with um, certain types of musicals that surround performance people. Like, so c- coming from like a musical pet musical theater pedigree, like you learn all these different types of, you know, there's uh, there's really well written musicals and there's like jukebox musicals and stuff. So mm-hmm. when I have a pet peeve where when a show is about performances, like about you know, like you've got like. Dream Girls or Jersey Boys or like all these musicals about performances. Right. Um, I do, I hate it when then suddenly they they break like they break they sing on stage, but then when they're off stage they like break into song. Yeah. It's weird because it, it, it shouldn't kinda, be allowed. It shouldn't it's be allowed. Not fair. Because it doesn't make any sense, right? So it's and then there's a jukebox musical which is, in my opinion, I don't like jukebox musicals. So essentially, it's a story. Because what a, what a, like, old classic musical theater, Oscar and Hammerstein, um, like, Stephen Sondheim, you know, Leonard Bernstein, all this stuff, musicals. It's like, the theory is when you can't, when you can't say it, and you're feeling so much, you can't say it anymore, you sing it. And when you can't sing it anymore, you dance. And there's this, there's, yeah. and the song, like, the action happens in the scene, and the song is um, by the end of it, the character is, is going through a revelation, and by the end of it, they're changed. So at the beginning of Oklahoma, he's like, oh, 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 what a beautiful morning. Like, he, like he's going into it. Yeah, yeah. But the problem with jukebox musicals, <laughs> I know this is, we are not talking about Fan of the Paradise right now, but is that there'll be like an action, and then they'll just like insert a popular song, and right. the song isn't, it's just kind of tertiary. It's just there. It's just like, okay, now we're going to break into song, and we're not learning anything more about the characters. Where... Yeah, I think that actually works better as a function from I found in cinema because mm-hmm. in something like Moulin Rouge, yeah. you can believe that these characters are so ahead of their time that they're singing songs that haven't been written yet. Yes. And part of the joy of the film is seeing how it fits and yeah. seeing how the pieces move. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you just have, here are a bunch of ABBA songs that we have stapled a narrative onto. Exactly. I get it? Yes, that's the Mamma Mia. Exactly. Yeah. Mamma is the greatest reference for that, for but sure. But I can't fully enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. And then when you watch... Because those songs belong to us already. Yes, exactly. And when you watch old musicals like Showboat, South Pacific, Oklahoma, like any of those musicals, or, you know, I was big into Stephen Sondheim is like my highest. People are always like, if you could meet anyone, I'm like, I would be a blubbering mess if I met Stephen Sondheim. And he's 80 and still writing music, so, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah. But, um, you know, his musicals, like A Little Night Music, Sending Bark with George, uh, Sweeney Todd, you know, he wrote the music for West Side Story, which is another one I could have talked about mm-hmm. for hours. You know, they... you. People always say, oh, I hate musicals. I'm like, well, why do you hate them? I'm like, well, I don't understand they break into song. I'm like, well, what about Sound of Music? And they're like, oh, no, I like Sound of Music. I'm like, what about West Side Story? And they're like, oh, no, I like West Side Story. And I think it's because they, you never, when they break into song, when he's like, Maria, Maria, Maria. Like, he's just, he's thinking, he's working through something, and then that causes music. And it's the same, it's actually the same rationale that goes into cinema, is that you have a scene and something's happening, and the the finishing the sentence of the scene emotionally is why an underscoring starts, right? Like it starts because something is happening and then music starts because it's annotating the, the, the under the subtextual feeling that's happening. So I don't know. I I could talk about musical theater for literally (laughs) weeks. 
No, it's great. Yeah, it's yeah. great. We don't do a lot of theory on the show. Oh, I, I know. It's, no. <laughs> it, musicals kind of lend themselves to it because everyone has to establish its own rules. Yeah. Every uh, author, every director has mm-hmm. to know. Because you've seen, we've all seen musicals made by people who don't really oh, fully God. believe in the form. And it's just like, oh, no, that doesn't work. And Phantom is a musical in as much as people are singing constantly. Yeah. But the context is always within the reality of the film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's There are no asides. No. There's a montage that's as close as it ever gets to sort of non-diegetic, just oh, yeah, I guess. You know, Winslow composing. Yeah, 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 that's and true. And we hear the song, but he's composing it. That's yeah. fine. It's yeah. legal. Yeah. It's legal. Um, within the rules that yeah. they've established. And it's so weirdly... Um, I was going to say it's a, a weirdly energetic musical, but I mean, all the good ones are. Exactly. Because uh, it has its own pulse. Right. And, and that's what I found, I mean, I'm going to get some haters, but like watching La La Land for me, I was kind of like, um, I, f- I, I felt like they maybe needed to go back to like music, th- musical theater theory a little bit because mm-hmm. there was so many times where I was like, I, I, like I f- there was just the gears kept changing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, they're breaking into song and yet, oh no, she's singing on stage and now there's a jazz he plays a jazz band, but there's none. There's no jazz music in the rest of the show. Like, why are they singing old? Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, that felt to me like the bones of an MGM musical. Like, yeah. the specific kind, like mm-hmm. singing in the, or, of the bandwagon where they end with the big production number. Yeah. But it's still in a modern idiom that doesn't... Well, not just that. I mean, like, when you watch all those old MGM musicals, we're talking about, like, I read a book, um, you know, like MGM, the studio years, and it was about how... These composers would spend 10 to 15 years coming up with, like, the music for Mary Poppins or the music for, like, Meet Me in St. Louis or Easter Parade or all this stuff. Like, these were some of the most brilliant musicians in the world. And I'm not saying that Damien Chazelle... How do you say his last name? Chazelle. Chazelle is not um, brilliant. I just mean, like, the composition of, of rhyming schemes and, like, the, the, the detailedness of it. Like, and the amount of, like, if you study the, the, the work that it went to Mary Poppins, right? Mm-hmm. And then the song... Well, the Sherman Brothers, right? Right, yes. And yeah. the songs that were cut, and you listen to those, and, you know, it's, it's, it's so much work in construction in the, and, and every character has a musical motif. And so when they sing together, like, Sondheim's great for that. When they sing together, it's, you know, you can hear... The motif, like Sunny in the Park with George, for instance, like it's all about pointillism painting. So the music sounds like Philip Glass and it's all that kind of deconstructionism and stuff. But like the the studio years of MGM music, anytime I get a chance to sing, like I did a show where we got to sing uh, like the trolley song from Meet Me in St. Louis, mm. like ding, ding, ding. And like just <laughs> there's like 10 parts to it. If you sing any single one of them, every progression to a different note is a story. It's so well done or listening listening to how you know they they would talk about how quirky mary poppins is where she sings in because she's so weird and every you know in most musicals anytime you say down or up your note goes down or up because what because the lyrics and the music are together completing a sentence which is why if you put music to poetry it just doesn't work because yeah. poetry inherently has music to it so together it's this like overwrought it's like two rich dishes put together. Yeah, the rhythms fight each other. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I know that Paul Simon did a did a musical, um, oh, the, the Cape, Cape Man. Man. Yeah. I saw it in New York, and I almost died. I was Ooh. like, Paul Simon, I love you, but this is awful. I've only heard the score, and I, I still can't imagine it on stage. It's it's a mess. It's a mess. Well, because he did it with the poet. Um, uh, just the W. I'm so bad with names. Sorry, podcast. <laughs> oh. um, but the Kate Man, yeah, look it up. Mm. But um, so yeah, Mary Poppins, when she sings, 
they they have this whole they had this whole they, in in this museum they have this whole um, letter back and forth about how fun it would be if if Mary Poppins goes just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down yeah. like she's saying down but go up and when that came out people knew so much like how crazy is it that she's like so you know the fact that she goes up on that instead like it's it took years and years and years decades of time mm. to make this music and i just felt with la la land it was kind of like they had just kind of taken a like a, a like a sweep at it and even the dancing like when you watch those old fred astaire dance you know the specificity from finger to toe and this that one just kind of felt like a like the bare bones of a right. you know and i don't understand like sinks I mean, at the end when she was singing out I was like, why? Where was that? <laughs> yeah. But that worked for me because that is, that's the payoff to the movie for me is that it's been hiding her yeah. because she, he hasn't seen her either because we have to see, because we're in his perspective mm-hmm. and that is an inherent limitation in the film. Yeah, yeah. Because we're limited to Seb, we don't get to understand how really powerful she is until that last moment, which is, I think, also why it got the accolades that it did because of the, the James Cameron talks about the recency effect if you mm-hmm. the last 20 minutes of the film are all you really care about right. emotionally that's what you bring out of the theater oh yeah the last 20 minutes and of you the film end on best. such yeah. a high yeah I also got the, yeah the first the, the last mo- like montage sequence was so great My, I had like total anxiety about watching the first five minutes because like if you're an actor who was auditioned in New York with a bu- if you're a soprano who's auditioned with a bunch of girls in New York You've auditioned against 600 girls in, like, prime-colored A-line dresses. Right. So the beginning dance sequence, I was like, oh, my God. It's <laughs> musical theater school again. Which is, you know, like, I'm a musical theater nerd, but um, I'm, like, a, I'm like a not a mainstream musical theater nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, might be how I ended up more in film right now. Um, because, like, you know, you have these... It's not hard to, to distinguish. It's like... You know, like, oh, what's your favorite musical? And if you say Sunny and the Park with George, people are like, oh, okay, you're 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 like a, you're like one of those, as opposed right. to like the jazz hand music theater right. thing. It's something you kind of have to. It's something I don't talk about. Like in the film industry, saying that you came up through musical theater is a dirty word. Really? Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, yeah. I just assumed theater kids would gravitate anyway. That's just seems to be the yeah. Way it goes. I mean, like, there's just such a weird rep for musical theater and a weird rep for theater actors. Mm. I'm less so for theater because you have the sh- it's just it's really about appearances and and um and you, you with theater you can say like oh I'm a Shakespeare actor right. and then you have all the cred of the film industry because film actors like they want to they they want to believe that that's like the highest type but the musical theater there's this misconception that people don't know how to act or that you know they're over the top or they're kind of showmans and that's totally true there's lots of that like yeah in bad music yeah in bad musical theater and and when you exactly the good stuff is incredible and and you know but when you go to musical theater school in new york it's like you have to (laughs) it's a shot of adrenaline every day (laughs) for people you know i was i was in new york when um wicked wicked had been out for many years and um it was basically like down the hall you could hear it was like down gravity like the personalities are just and also musical theater has this confining thing about it that i really don't like which is why i moved more into film is that you're either like a this or a that you're like an ingenue or you're a vixen and for me being a blonde female soprano it was like you are going to play the ingenue who is the love interest and all this stuff and and there's these total like weird like you're this type you're that type or you're this and they say it they'll be like oh in this show you're an annie in this show you're a like a this and I also loved like originating roles and writing and stuff like that. So there's not much room for that. But 
the type of musicals auditioning for Broadway shows with a song from Fan of the Paradise was me attempting to be like, all right, guys, yeah, <laughs> here's something weird. And here's... If it, but if it connects, it's worth it, right? I mean, totally. if you meet somebody who actually responds to the frequency. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and I moved away from, before I came more into film, I moved away from musical theater and did more like experimental opera theater where I was like naked on stage in the South, in like Tribeca doing like weird stuff. <laughs> so... I mean, like, I, I, I ditched my, like, soprano, rainbow, A-line dress stee pretty quickly. <laughs> but I came up through that, you know? So, um, but I love, like, like you, it takes two seconds for theater nerds to be like, oh, da 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, this show, like, I've always, like, I watched it again on Saturday as well, because I was like, all right, I'm going to talk about it. I guess I should. Like, I've seen it so many times. And, like, Paul Williams, I had no idea, but he's in so many movies still. Yeah, he's in Baby Driver. Yeah, right he's now. in Baby Driver, right. Yeah, because I was looking up on Wikipedia. I was like, whoa, yeah. he's in Baby Driver. Well, Edgar Wright is a huge, huge fan. Really? Just loves him. Yeah. Oh. Loves him to pieces. And was so happy he could cast him in something. He is, and he, he looks, he looks like he's never aged. And that's kind of what's funny about this movie, is mm. that he's made this deal with the devil, whatever, and, and like that scene where he's in the bathtub and he's supposed to be like 18 he's like yo man like yeah. I'm I'm like are you 18 like I'm very confused 1953 Paul Williams is 1974 Paul Williams is 2017 Paul it is it's it, it is a sort of a triumph of that scene that it is impossible and still great yeah you know it's got multiple cuts it's got close-ups or more than one camera going oh and, and this is just him recording a suicide note in a bathtub and yeah somehow because of all the devil stuff, I guess. Yeah, why not? yeah. It becomes its own little short film. Yeah. And it's insane. It's insane. But it is delightful. Yeah. And, and you were saying, like, I'm just saying the last 20 minutes of a movie is all anybody remembers. The last 20 minutes of The Phantom of the Paradise, oh. I don't think it even has a song. It's just crazy. It's crazy. It's and, and speaking of um, extras, in that last scene, and I guess we can... We can sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This last scene... It'll be incomprehensible <laughs> to anyone who yeah, hasn't yeah. seen it. Um, the last scene when... Um, Winslow is like crawling on the ground. You notice this extra who's just crawling alongside him is like, "Yeah, man, like you're living your full truth." Because like if someone just gets shot, like uh, Swan's face is getting all messed up. Mm. Winslow's dying, and all the crew is just like, "Party on, party on!" Yeah, and because they all think it's part of the show. They all think it's part this of the is show. The second night of this epic cantata. Yeah, I know. After which one person has already been murdered, right? Like, on or screen, burned yeah, yeah. to death. And I think... Um, poor Beef. It could, poor Beef, I know. And, and he's so good. <laughs> and I think it's also a little... Not maybe a little bit, but a comment on this kind of... Um, I think Swan says a couple lines that uh, allude to this idea of, like, this is what people want. Like, people yeah. want spectacle. People want this this grand thing. And, like, what's, what's more appealing than a real, alive assassination and yeah. stuff? And you're like, yeah, not much has changed. <laughs> yeah, no, Network was two years away. Like, that yeah. hadn't even happened yet. I, I I keep thinking, I'm trying to place it in my head, oh, it's a reaction to this, it's a reaction to that. I said, no, it was there first. Yeah. This has actually got there ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Um, I think there's an assassination bit in High Mom, like in one of De Palma's earlier films, but this is one of these weird articulations of public policy mm-hmm. by a film that no one paid any attention to. I no. mean, the only reason it exists is, I think, because Fox just didn't notice it was happening. It, yeah. was on, it was under the radar. It was off in New York and they were in LA and they maybe got the rushes and had no idea what to do with them. But there's no question that this film is what it is because it came out of one guy's head. Yeah. It, it, that's what it feels like when I say it's confident. It's it, like when he starts the split screen out of nowhere, you're like, what? Yeah. Okay. But yeah. And it, it's, it's, a, it's the whole thing feels like arts and crafts 
but it does have a consistency to it in this in in its in its like in its maybe um its vitality or it it feels like it's all one drug like yeah. it's just yeah, this a- drug that someone has been like amp like just continuing to take and that's why it feels consistent because it feels like the same drug you're on the whole time but it's insane yeah. and I- then and like the performances too like Winslow Leach um it's not uh it's kind of like how I when I when I watch like Jenna Rollins or like any of like Cassavetti's films I watch her I'm like your performance is so timeless like a woman under the influence you're mm-hmm. just watching her be so messy and unhinged and uninhibited in a way that I honestly don't see you you don't see a lot of actors do that today yeah there's no hint of style yeah there's, there's no just, hint of style there's just a there's just a pure unfiltered act that's happening yeah and, and yeah Finley is one of those fascinating he gets his due in the De Palma documentary does he really uh, he actually lets oh, I gotta watch De Palma that. talks about him quite a bit and and he was somebody who is uh his 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 how can I even put this his appearance is just he was never going to be a mainstream leading no, man no he was probably much better on stage in in that sort of role but the Phantom, the role of, of Winslow Leach, is as close as he ever got to a proper right. star yeah. role. And he's really good. He's like really he's, good. But he's, he's got pathos and he's got sympathy and he even manages to put in that weird little twitch about the temper early on. Yeah. and it, But it's also like he's... You watch him and go, no one would ever let this happen. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you talk about... I mean, the, the last thing that I ever want to think about as an actor, but I know some actors are really good at it, is like angles... Like, I don't know that stuff. I just, I've tried intentionally not to, I don't ever watch, like, the monitor. I don't want to, like, know if I, if there's a certain way I'm right. thinking supposed to be late or whatever. Maybe when I'm, like, you know, unfortunately, when, for most female actors, when they're in their, like, 40s and 50s, that's, like, the only thing they, they talk to you about because they think, because they, <laughs> they're so hard on you to wait to look a certain way, to look younger, or to look older, or whatever. It's just, maybe this will be something that I will have to focus on more, but, like, this idea of, of like you look attractive or appealing or cinematic in one part of your face. Right. Winslow Leach is is going ham. Like the guy yeah. is like there was an entire scene where he's only showing us like his neck, and you're like, God, dude, this is amazing. <laughs> like you're just like when he's playing at the very beginning, mm-hmm. he's just throwing. <laughs> yeah. And just and scary like the and and I love you know I love in the movies in the seventies when no one has white teeth. No one's eyes have been like whited out. They've yeah. been, like there's just a rawness to it, and the you can see the makeup. You can see, you can see all of it, and like like the the the, the cigarette stains on people's fingers and mm-hmm. stuff. It's so good. But when yeah. I don't know, um, like what else he's been in? I, I did Google this on. He's he's been in a bunch of De Palma's films. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if there is a major other role, I don't know it. Right. Um, but there's also his choices are so specific that I can't imagine he would have had a long mainstream run. Mm-hmm. It's just. The stuff, he, like, even as the Phantom, he almost never blinks. That well, one eye is like wired well, open. That's what I mean. Is that yeah. like I'm like, gosh, dude, you're, this doesn't look attractive in <laughs> any way. You're like, ah, scary, but it's amazing because he yeah. just went there. I can't imagine people coming out of this and going, oh, we need to get him for our next picture. Well, this is what I'm saying. Like you've seen the perfect performance from him. This is what he was made for. Right. So that's. I guess that's kind of what I'm driving at. Is yeah, that yeah. Like, it's the most, it's such an incredible performance, and yet I wouldn't know where else to put him. Mm-hmm. And Williams, as an actor, didn't do a lot, but I just think it was never really his focus. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, he barely sings in this film, right? Does he sing at all? He has. Yeah, he sings the of... Faust at the beginning. Right. 
I was not myself last night in the morning. But I'm like, but we don't see it, do we? We see him play because, like, at the beginning, um, the Juicy Bits play, and then they leave, and then he comes on stage, and he's just playing, and then Swan's like, "Quiet, I've got to listen to this guy." But he doesn't look like he's actually playing the piano. Mm -hmm. That for sure. And then you see um, Harper show up, and she doesn't play an instrument; she just sings, but she sings. So big. Well, this is the thing I was trying to remember and lead into, and I couldn't figure out how. But it's amazing to me that so much of this film involves characters who are fully formed. Mm-hmm. Leech is, I mean, Leech is the only person we ever see at home, I think. Yeah. Uh, Swan, you get a bedchamber, but it's not, it's clearly yeah, yeah. not where he lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, everybody else just arrives. Yeah, that's so uh, true, Phoenix actually. manifests herself in the audition line. Swan is established before the movie begins. Juicy Fruits are established. Beef just shows up. They they have no home lives. They only exist for this. Well, and also there isn't there isn't any moment where it's just a clashing of people. Yeah. There's not ever a moment where um, where Phoenix is thinking like I I can't make it or I, I I don't have the voice and someone else teaches her to. She's like no, I'm the best singer. Just give me an opportunity and then they do. Yeah. Leech gives her one note reading basically. Yeah. And she's already going where he wants the song to go. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then that's it. Yeah, there really isn't any character arc. And there's almost no exposition either. It just races through, like, scene to scene. This is drugs. Well, yeah, you were saying it's like someone invented the drug. And I I was saying to Kate, completely unrelated, I was like, you know, this is the movie that made it necessary to invent crystal meth. Yes. Because now we know what it feels like. Yes. I mean, you're just watching the... And that's why it's to bring it back to the bizarre-ass way that I watched this Mm. thing with my brother. And you were 11? I was 11, and he would have been 9. And we were just sitting in this part workout room, part maternity clothes, like, sewing room. We also watched it in the dark on a TV that was, like... Like a 20-inch screen. Yeah, 20-inch screen. And we were just like, wow. Like, our eyes were just as big as his for... And then we like left and we came downstairs and people were, you know, were like, what were you guys doing? And we're like, we're forever changed. Yeah. Like this movie. And the funny thing is, is that after that, you know, I occasionally just be singing the music and Chris would be, you know, he was obsessed with like the Juicy Fruit songs. <laughs> and then, um, and then like, I forgot about it. We forgot about it for years. And then, uh, years later before I w- had moved to New York, like I would, must've been like 17 or 18. Um, my brother, Chris, he like around Christmas time, um, you know, he, he always, like, he's not the best at, like, a, remembering to buy people gifts and stuff like that. He's just, a, he's a little bit of, like, his, a space cadet. Okay. And he was like, yo, Kelly, like, I got a sweet gift for you this year. And my, the whole family was like, okay. <laughs> like, okay, Chris. And Chris was like, he hands me this. And he got me the, he'd found, like, the Phantom of the Paradise, like, CD and DVD. And I, like, burst into tears because I hadn't even, like, thought about this movie in so long. Oh. And we were just thought, this is so crazy. And I couldn't believe it. She's like, yeah, I saw it at this thing. And like, I just got it for you. And um, I was so moved by it because I hadn't thought about that memory. And I hadn't thought about like that weird time we'd shared. And then we watched it again. And we're like, this is still as cracked out. (laughs) So you do. Yeah, it held up. It it had totally held up. And then that's when I started singing it at auditions and stuff. But um, yeah, there really really isn't any character arc. Like even... Even Swan doesn't go through some any any type of like they're everyone's just an, a a one dimensional archetype mm-hmm. who has been put in this insane even the calling it the paradise is so wonderful and just the way he talks is like the paradise like the 
this this amazing rock hall, which I guess would be more of a New York thing anyways, right? Yeah. Yeah, New York was famous for places like the Tunnel and the Limelight and, mm-hmm. and things that were just basically coke dens that had yeah. dancing in them, Studio 54 and yeah. everything else, There's, where yeah. the glamorous, beautiful people would arrive and do things that would ruin them. Yeah. And, and it's weird. I mean, yeah, in, in L.A., what would you have? Like the whiskey or something would probably yeah. be the only kind of archetypal place. Yeah, you wouldn't have a live like concert hall venue that would pack I mean there's so many things to talk about but even the costumes it, the they're so specific and real and tactile like my favorite moment was when Beef thinks he's gonna quit the show and he comes downstairs in this like Santa costume that's right and it's you're like, like Terry Cloth it's like a Terry Cloth like Santa jacket like with the fur and he's like no I'm leaving and <laughs> Oh man, and, and like, and I love that Beef is never the same in from scene from any no. one scene to the next. Not only does his like he gets queenie, he gets bitch, yeah. he gets weirdly. He has like a weird accent at one yeah, point. Yeah, it comes and goes, and I I just I have a feeling that Garrett Graham, who's maybe got twenty minutes of screen time all in, including yeah. performance, just was. I don't think he had a script. Like he clearly knows what to do, but he's just making it up as he goes in a way that suits everything somehow yeah. because. The, the elasticity of the film's reality at that point is already so crazy that you can do anything and it right. would work. Mm-hmm. And so he does everything. Yeah. There's a moment in the film that I really love where he's trying to learn the music that Phoenix ends up singing mm. later. And he's got the score in front of him and he's listening. He's like trying to play along and then he's like, this this, this is written for a chick. And it, it made me so happy because in the 70s, like musicians would be able to read music. <laughs> Whereas like if you put... A, a new piece of music, a score in front of maybe a front man. I don't know. Maybe I'm offending half of Toronto, but <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't be able to read that thing. It was just so, he's just like, this is written for a chick. Like I need to sing an octave high or whatever. Yeah. And Oh man. And then Swan's got those like two piece suits. He's all the ascots. And then that freaky moment where like the devil tells him that he has to watch and listen his tape every night. So well done. Mm-hmm. Like, that's such a weird Thing. It's a strange qualifier, right? Yeah, yeah, like it's yeah. a really weird thing. And you'd think he'd also be better at hiding it. Yeah. But of course, it's only ninety minutes. You can't have an elaborate you can't suddenly have a heist movie. You just no. find it and immediately destroy it. No. Yeah. I think it, it it has like um maybe another reason why it wouldn't work on stage is the charm of it is that almost it feels like these are these are theater set pieces that are just being like thrown in, you know? Yeah, like yeah. there's a such an arts and crafts thing to it. It's not it doesn't. It's so weird. <laughs> I just hope people want to do a, want to watch this movie or like you know it's a, it's a great alternative to doing drugs for sure. Sure, you don't have to. You don't. You don't have. I mean, I can't it imagine. Does them for you. I can't imagine doing drugs and watching this movie. It would be too much. It was a midnight movie for decades. Oh. I mean, I would be afraid to go see it with a crowd. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen it. No, wait, no. I must have. I think I saw it at the blue once. Well, this you know this like Rocky Horror Picture Show has been the midnight movie for you know yeah generations. released the following year. Stole its thunder, and and yeah. Fox clearly, I mean, distributed both movies and clearly got behind both of them. Yeah. Um, but Rocky Horror, I think, is the sweeter, more inclusive musical. Mm-hmm. Phantom of the Paradise is weird and angry, and everybody dies and suffers <laughs> and bleeds. And I mean, I prefer it. I think it's a better construction because Rocky Horror never transcends its stage origins. No, yeah. As a movie, and Shock Treatment tried to deal with that and didn't quite succeed either. But mm. I love them. But mm-hmm. I think. Phantom is the one that just 
I was going to say it knows what it's doing. I don't think it does. I think it's just <laughs> discovering this incredible new ground as it's going. <sighs> you know, he's writing it. And can I get away with this? And somehow, yes. What did he do after this? Uh, Carrie. He did Carrie, yeah, right? Yeah, of all things. Which I think is funny because people are like, well, who made it? I'm like, Brian De Palma, he did Carrie. You know, like, they're like, oh, okay. So then I think, but that, that kind of, that's a whole, that movie went in a whole different direction with the, you know, you know, and there's just not really much of a line you can draw besides the there's extreme. Some, yeah, yeah, some Hitchcockian lifts and some high emotion points. Yeah. But yeah, there's no real, you look at the way John Carpenter's career evolved, another horror auteur, mm-hmm. and you see a straight line. Mm-hmm. De Palma is just like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this now. It's kind of what Soderbergh did. Yeah. And just, you know, way more aggressive direction, I guess, his cinema. And then he went back to the Fury. He's always been a blood and guts sort of mm-hmm. filmmaker, and mm-hmm. by which I mean both gore and also just wading into stuff. Right. And this is that, mm-hmm. just in a completely different context in a milieu that he'd never visited mm-hmm. since. I mean, for me as a filmmaker, like, I would much rather do stuff that doesn't really resemble each other. Like, I watched this on when I on Saturday, and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I want to make a Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> I want to make something that's just high, like, like the, just high the entire time. <laughs> right. Something that's just so, his choices are so weird. They're so weird. They're so <laughs> weird. Yeah, I, there's, it's, it's. It's amazing how few people have seen this movie. It's weird. I thought it had more of a cult following. And mm-hmm. I guess it did, and then it just went away for a while. Mm-hmm. Things ebb and flow, and, yeah. and the, the Shot Factory Blu-ray should have triggered a rediscovery, but I think people just keep it at arm's length still. It's like, that's I mean, the movie I... where the guy wears the motorcycle helmet face? What is that? <laughs> yeah. If I ever meet Paul Williams, I'm going to bring it up. I wonder what he oh, thinks think about it. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah. I'd be like, just so you know... <laughs> Little bit obsessed with Phantom of the Paradise. Had an entire, like, not-so-traumatizing childhood because of this. It's a formative experience. I can't conceive of seeing it that young. Oh, so weird. How much of it would you even understand? I mean, We were just like... Did you connect to one particular piece of it? Uh, well, I mean, at that point, I, I, I was seven when I discovered that I wanted to be an actor. Like, okay. I was gung-ho. Like, I, I've told this story a bunch, but I went to go see Hal Prince's revival of Showboat... Um, Lynette McKee came out at the second act, sang the song Bill. I had a panic attack in the audience. Like, seven-year-olds don't have panic attacks. But I was, um, I was, uh, shaking and, like, sweating, and my hair was sticking up on end, and I was watching this woman sing, and I was, like, I could hear her heartbeat, and I had this moment of, like, sheer inspiration, divine intervention, I don't know, (laughs) like, it was totally weird and my mom you know, was looking down at me like are you all right and and then this other girl came on like the, then the show continued this girl comes on stage she looks my age she was like in the show and i hated her <laughs> i was like you little jet i was just like i hate you like why are you on stage and then i went home and like ran up to my room and like cried and cried and cried and cried and my mom comes upstairs and she was like what's wrong? And I'm like, you'll never understand. And like, oh, I just like wanted it so bad. And I'd never seen like a show or anything or play or whatever. And I just saw it and boom, that was it. I just thought, you know, for the rest of my life, every single thing I've ever done was geared towards performing. And, you know, when I was 11, I like took myself downtown and get an agent, right? I, my mom was a single mom. She didn't have time for it. So she was not, she's a wonderful stage mom in that she was very supportive. She was not a stage mom in that she knew anything about the industry <laughs> was going to help me. Um, but, so yeah, I think when I watched Phantom of the Paradise, I was 11, and I, 
I, I loved the performance aspect of it. I mean, I loved Phoenix. I thought she was so cool to come out and, like, get everyone quiet. And But, I mean, we had, we had also watched, like, so many weirder movies. Uh, when I first watched this, I didn't find it... You know, I, I understood it. And then I ended up getting... Having a couple of my friends watch it. I had a friend, uh, a couple friends over, and we were watching it. The The suicide bit in the tub... Like, I always found suicide a very disturbing topic. Like, it was something that I couldn't think about. Like, I couldn't... It freaked me out too much. Mm -hmm. So, like, in the devil thing in the tub, I was like... Didn't want to think about, like, that's what he was doing or whatever. But it also kind of blows by it pretty quick. Yeah, and it's such a vain reason, too. Like, I'm just... I'm going to get old, so I might as well kill myself Mm -hmm. and record this for posterity. But that's all you need to know about that character. And then when you find out that he has to watch himself be old for every day to bear witness or whatever. So freaky. What I There's one thing I don't understand, which is he gets Phoenix to sign a contract, but why, like what is... Yeah, we don't know exactly what she's being promised or why she survives at the end. And then she's like, till death do us part. And then he's like, that's why we have to kill her. I, I felt like there was something to do with the reason he wants to kill her at the end was because she had signed some sort of contract. Also, it's like, you know... As a, as a feminist and as someone who's always tracking female characters, it is kind of hilarious that she's like, they didn't, you know, she's she's like, I don't want to sleep with him in the beginning, right? And then she makes it, and then he's all like, great job. And then she's the one who's like, yeah. is that all you want? And then she goes and sleeps with him. And then you see her in the next scene, and she's like doing cocaine in the back of the car. I'm like, it's kind of awesome. Like, yeah. It's kind of make her a total sellout. In the course of one day. In if, the course- if I've got the timeline right, that happens overnight. It, overnight, yeah. yeah. Like she's, Literally. And he's in his room. He's not even like hitting on her that much. So she's like, you're a big success. You're going to be a star. And he's like, that's what I want for you. And she's like, that's what you only want? And mm-hmm. then it cuts to them making out. And then it cut- it's just kind of like... I guess it's 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 helpful for the Phantom's character to go through this. He like, needs to be provoked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it, it is pretty funny that she's not. She doesn't. Ha- you'd think now that she would have some sort of like, like um, you know, she'd be hold, held back again. You know, she wouldn't want to do it. Right. It would be a crisis point for a her. crisis point. Not at all. Nope. There's no crisis points for any of the characters. It was 1973. <laughs> she's just like, well, I guess this is, this I is get to next, sleep with <laughs> the next stage on the way to stardom. Right. Which is kind of amazing. Yeah. She's just. Doing her thing. And it's funny, It's that's a point where, I guess, everything in the movie sort of comes to a head, mm-hmm. narratively, but it also feels like the last bump. Yeah. <laughs> just going to do one more and then be done, and then it all gets away from them, and creatively, it just gets so completely out of hand. The drugs. It's, it's a just delirious one... explosion of everything. So did Kate like it? Was she like... I don't know yet. It's been 48 <laughs> hours. Uh, she's still rocking back and forth in another room. She, I think she did... I think she... I mean, I know she enjoyed the experience, but she also hasn't articulated a feeling about it yet because it's so overwhelming. Well, the best part is, um, like, I will play the Old Souls song or on the ukulele or whatever, and, mm-hmm. like, it's it's such an earworm. Like, those songs are so well-written. Like, yeah. Paul Williams just knows how to write a, a good tune. Like, it's undeniable. And, uh, oh, gosh, those that music, the music lasts. And then when you start to know the music and when you watch the movie again, you notice how they are interwoven between like when beef is kind of singing that song a little bit and it's just so well done like how they kind of you see how the how the phantom would be so upset about his music being mutilated like Mm -hmm. that you know so good he's so dumb at the beginning he's like oh yeah here's my entire score to that other guy Oh, man. I assume everybody was just that naive in the early 70s. And I think that's why you couldn't make it now, too. You couldn't remake this story. No. Not 
directly. You'd have to do it in period, and that would be pointless because mm-hmm. you can never replicate it as well as they captured it. Yeah, well, that's what we you know we talk about with Sugar Daddy. It's like how do you make a, a, a music movie? Um, first of all, most music movies star men, like mm. trying to make it Eight Mile, Purple Rain, like these. There's, there isn't, people have a lot of time for male characters who just are focused on their music, just focus on their art, like Inside Lewin Davis, and they, you know, we, we believe that this is the thing they want, and in the end, like, like, we're rooting for them in that way, where we have a hard time letting female characters just want to focus on something, be it sports, be it art, whatever, because we have this expectation that they want to find a man, and that's, like, their character arc, um, which we are obviously fighting against with this film, um, so... It's, but how do you make a, a music movie where right now in this day and age, you can make so much movie, music just in your own apartment? Sure. Yeah. So we kind of play with this idea of, of like authenticity and like, you know, there's this great, there's this great Bjork article in Pitchfork where she talks about how like she's made all this music and produced her own music and all this stuff. And, and yet she'll have one producer work on like a part of one track and people are interviewing him and saying like, what was it like producing Bjork's track? And she says... She's like, I have to take photos of myself in the studio to prove that I've produced like every aspect of this. Or you have car- um, musicians like Grimes who, who produces every like sound on her track, and she doesn't want anyone to produce her sounds because we have such a hard time believing in the female auteur. So, with this movie, you know, we're trying really hard to think of ways to cinematically show a, a character writing music in it, like being in that creative space, playing multiple different instruments. I just bought. I just bought a pedal steel because in the show she plays a pedal steel because I'm an insane person and I thought it was smart to write a movie where a character plays a pedal steel, which turns out is the hardest instrument to learn. I believe it's quite complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This guitarist, this very well-known Canadian um, electric guitarist, was like, "If I practiced every," he's like, "I'm a professional guitar player, and if I practice every day on the pedal steel for a whole year, I might be able to play live." I'm like, "Okay, cool." So. All right, <laughs> I've got six months. Um, yeah, so it's def- definitely the, the, the art of showing music being made and the construction of music is something I've always been drawn to. And of course, this movie is a hilarious example of that, which is why anytime I drop it in a meeting, I'm like, you know, like, it's, it's, it's like definitely modern, but it has that kind of like pulsating intensity of, of Phantom of the Paradise. And people are like, did you just say Phantom of the Paradise? <laughs> It's good. You're finding your tribe. Yes, I know. And then, then my uh, my people are like, "What are you talking about?" Here? I'm like, "It's this movie. It's like Phantom of the Opera, but nothing like Phantom of the Opera." Because <laughs> Phantom of the Opera is also like a dirty word in the musical theater community. Well, I was about to say you, you've mentioned a lot of composers, and, and mm-hmm. uh, Weber is not on there. Didn't come up, and no. I'm not surprised. Frankly, I'm, I'm I've always been like, my thing is I've always been more of an Ashman Menken yeah. lover, and of course. They only did a handful of scores before mm-hmm. before Ashman died. Yeah. And well, I like Angela Weber when he was working with Tim Rice, which was in the seventies when they did Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, which so that I, sort of complexity. And, yeah. Well, also they were like these young, you know, down and out seventies, you know, dudes living in London, just like trying to make like they had that kind of. And then he got really really famous, and I think got lazy. <laughs> say it. Um, and wrote, you know, kind of musicals that were, um, like, listen, I, I grew up, I knew, I know all the words to all, and all of Angela Weber's musicals. I know that, like, Cats, really? Like, okay, but, um, yeah, like, I love Jesus Christ Superstar. I was gonna say that it's another, I could talk about 
um, Judson's Juice Guy Superstar for hours as well. Because yeah. another incredibly like you know it has that same type of feel as Phantom of Paradise, where it's where you're you're almost like seeing the seams, like you're seeing the actors put this on. Yeah, like you're yeah. watching them. You 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 can see the construction of it, or you can deconstruct it because you're yeah. you're seeing them bring it to you. Yeah, I mean that was the the opening sequences yeah. showing up in the bus. Well, Akira G actually did the episode, did the the Jesus Christ Superstar episode. No so. way. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I have to go and listen. I can't. I did not know she loved Jesus Christ Superstar. It's a good episode. It's a good episode. No, that epi- yeah. that that movie is so good. I watch it every. I'm not a religious person, but um, it always plays over Easter. Mm-hmm. It it's always on, so I'm always like, where's I like flip through the channels. I'm like, okay, where's Jesus Christ Superstar? <laughs> and th- they're so sweaty and seventies <laughs> and like sinewy and like dancers in the seventies. Similar to this movie, yeah. they just have they're just like a different type of body, you know? Like yeah. they're just Godspell too. It's, oh, Godspell. An example of that yeah. When you see the film version. Oh gosh, you're just like, oh, you did you eat any? Oh, just the drugs. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> What they, it's what's for dinner. <laughs> Drugs for dinner. Oh yeah, God, so good. People. You know, we've talked about so many musicals. I love it. Yeah, this is great. Well, I, I will wrap the, the podcast with the same question we always mm-hmm. end on, which is, and you've kind of already answered it, what, if anything, have you absorbed, uh, borrowed, stolen, oh. has made it of the Phantom of the Paradise into your own creative DNA? <sighs> Such a good question. Um, as a performer, I... I try and seek out and maybe this you know the Nadeau's was something that we were able to do this in is like I'm I, I do like when the camera's like super close and mm. you're just like you're living your inner life and you you can think something and the camera's gonna pick it up but I love like showing like like my freak flag you know like being like all like Freddie Mercury styles yeah. like dance you know and when I watch the Phantom of the Phantom of the Paradise as I kind of said earlier there's such an inhibition in this, like, I'm willing to just be sweaty, ugly, like, absolutely crazy, wacky, weird. And if you have... I want, I'd like to make a movie or even perform in a movie where I have that kind of wild inhibition physically where you can, you can just be a freak and the camera and it's almost like anti-cinema <laughs> it's not you're not contained in a frame you are like you waiting for the the dp to pick you up right. if they have to and if that means that it's a giant wide then fine you know like you see that in movies and the way people move and in harold and Maude and in a lot of you know in jesus christ superstar it's like these bo- full bodies on stage and i think as a female, like the expectations of to look to your body to be a silhouette and for you to stand a certain way, um, I would love nothing more than to make a movie and be in a movie and create opportunities for other actors to kind of like really express in that full-bodied 70s way. Yeah, so, it really isn't happening anymore, no. is it? I mean, even in stuff like La La Land, which uses the, the Astaire kind of imagery, full shots, people performing, you don't have a sense of physicality you yeah. have a sense of choreography yeah exactly like it's i mean you know it's it's a big thing is, is that like as a film actor sometimes like you don't even need to know like it's like on stage it's like this thing called stage presence like physical stage presence you walk mm. on stage you have to know where to put your hands and and to how to walk and how that character does all that stuff in film all that is all that is necessary if you're interested in doing it, but with lenses getting more and more precise and the lens getting closer and closer and closer and people working towards ultra-realism, which I think is great a lot of times, you, I do miss a lot of that, like, you know, 
taxi driver-esque kind of like watching a character walk across the street and seeing how they, being able to tell what music the character listens to by their body. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's um, a combination of just like the history of styles or, or the type of lenses people want to use now or whatever. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's very rare do you, do you ask the DP when you're on set. Like, you're like, all right, what's the frame? And they're like, it's really close. And you're like, okay, so I cannot move. And, like, the reason I became a performer is because I love... I mean, I've just been... I, if I could perform by myself for nobody, I'd still be doing it. Like, that's... I just love the physical act of storytelling, and that involves your whole body. And for women especially, like, they're always telling you to tone it down. And that's... If I could take one thing from Fan of the Paradise, yeah. it's that I wish that we didn't have to tone it down, and I, and and it's, and maybe maybe there isn't an appetite for it. I don't know, like you know, La La Land, but I don't. Would you say that there's a part in La La Land where people are, like, you know, unhinged? No. No, I mean, I think about the, the sequence. Sort of dressing to go out for the party sequence mm-hmm. with four women in yeah, it's true. In it's a weird full view yeah. of each other, kind of moving back and forth through the rooms. That's as close as it gets. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's kind of a weird. Besides the fact that they're both musicals, that there's not really much to compare. But yeah. but it's know. just the modern standard now. It's become by virtue yeah. of being the thing that happened. Yeah. Most recently, I mean, animated films mostly. You know, like something like Moana, which is a proper Broadway musical. Yeah. In a way that maybe even Frozen wasn't, mm-hmm. but that brings back that huge sense of you know, of inviting the audience into this gargantuan story and running around inside crowds. And mm-hmm. now you do it digitally. You don't do it with people. Anymore. Yeah, like the, the, when you want, so we keep going, but like yeah. the set, when you watch those 70s movies and you're like, those crowd scenes, you, I, I think, wow, this looks actually, like, I don't know how they, this looks dangerous. Yeah, there's like, a, we were doing Clute a year and a bit ago with yeah. Nadia Let's Pick Clute, and I watched the extras, the mm-hmm. special features on the DVD, and there's a little thing about a scene at a shot at a club, and it's chaos. Chaos. I don't think they were playing music. That's the only difference. Yeah. Like, the people are miming. Yeah. But there are 300 people, and somebody has to get yanked off a chair, and, and it's all just happening, and there's probably a PA on either side, yeah. but that's it. There's just nothing. Well, I think also that I, I think it has. I, I I'm not a director and I'm not like a camera person. I'm the person who writes films, acts in them, and produces them. But I'm sure that there's something to be said for like lighting and cameras and filters and like how you you, you can't like now with movement. It's 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 like it's it's so specific and it has to be placed and you have to set up how the camera, the lighting's hitting you to to fill the camera lens for these fancy lenses. Mm-hmm. But back in the day when you just like flood light onto a bunch of people and you just have like taxi cabs going by and all that and and then also, you know, you watch someone like Jenna Rollins and a woman under the influence, which Ingrid Benninger did with yeah. a great episode for um all of her shots are from the knees up and she is using her whole body in a way I've never seen before and that like I watched that movie once the first time and I watched it a second time right away twice and I bawled my eyes out because I was like who's this this what (laughs) this performance is insane and and so yeah I don't I don't know what my and and maybe like in Sugar Daddy there's obviously performance scenes and you know the director and I Wendy Morgan talk about that is like how does Darren the character like physically own the stage because we can get away with a little bit of that as opposed to it being like right on my you missed that that noise was me making a a close-up shot here so yeah that's what I would take away that and then also as a writer fan of the paradise will constantly be this litmus test for like how confident in your choices are you (laughs) 
would you like to make this a split skein? Why not? Would you like to do this? I don't know. Like, yeah, I, it's, it's so, it's also so colorful. It's yeah. so colorful. Yeah. So if you can, I'm just thinking, can you use Phantom as a, should I do this? It's like, hasn't that's already been done in the most insane way possible? Yeah. I, I don't know if I would ever do something. I think the point of Phantom is to make the wackiest expression of your freaksness and it can't be an iteration of someone else's wacky expression of their freakness. But I definitely have a couple ideas that are wacky expressions of my freakness. <laughs> where I could go, you know, like, eh, should this drop into surrealism? Sure. Should this turn into the musical number? Why not? Like, it, it, I, it, I, want, I want a film one day to feel like arts and crafts for me. And it to be like this splattering, like as if I would gotten high and I was expressing it in this <laughs> totally theatrical way. I, and, and then also like then that you know that would tip the scale and I would want to do something really like like subtle and right. under like subtextual and there's That's no a, subtext to this. No, it's all text, and the text is don't do drugs. <laughs> it's all text, and it's all archetypes. There are no character arts, just chaos. <laughs> it's kind of what makes it perfect. Exactly, it's a perfect film. <laughs> My thanks to Kelly McCormack who you can and will enjoy as Zeph on Killjoys, Fridays at 8 p.m. on Sci-Fi in the U.S. and Space in Canada, and in the Nadeaus of Duquesne Island, available right now on CBC Digital. And keep an eye out for Barn Wedding and Play the Film. They're bound to turn up somewhere. You can find Kelly on Twitter at Kel McCormack, all one word, K-E-L McCormack, and you can find Phantom of the Paradise in a suitably vivid Blu-ray edition from Shout Factory. It's also on DVD from 20th Century Home Fox and available on iTunes and Google Play, but really, the Shout Blu-ray, that's the way you want to go. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you, or just rate us with the little stars. And just remember, never sign a contract before running it past a lawyer and a priest first. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn